We are still in the book of Joshua. And last week, I talked about how Israel itself is laid out topographically. So one of the things we talked about is the extent of the land grant. And what I've got up here is the shaded relief map that goes from the Sinai Peninsula all the way up to what's now southern Turkey. And a couple of things I want you to know. This up here is the Euphrates River. And Carchemish is somewhere around here. Carchemish is a big thing in history. They're, the Egyptians, when they traveled north, uh, had a big battle with somebody, I've forgotten who, at Carchemish and finally got driven back. That was the northernmost extent of the Egyptian empire that they ever reached. The land grant of Israel goes clear to the river. So when it says in scripture, the river, it's talking about the Euphrates. This is what's called the Brook of Egypt. And definitely it goes all the way up here to the Euphrates. A couple of things I want to point out, since I was pointing out last time how the land of Israel is laid out and how militarily you can see how Joshua went about the business of conquering the land and why he did it that way. There's a couple of things that are interesting just in general. This is, of course, the Dead Sea here, and this is the Sea of Galilee. And up here, this is what's now known as Lebanon. Syria has taken over part of it. This line right through here is what's called the Becca Valley. And one of the things that you'll notice, the terrain is in more or less north-south compartments. So if an invading army is coming through Israel, right in this area here is Damascus. This area up in the north here is known as the Fertile Crescent. And it goes across Turkey up here and then down through Babylon, what's now Iraq. And the thing about that piece of land is it generates agricultural surplus. And when you have agricultural surplus, what you wind up having is a surplus of young men, which means what you wind up having is an army. So armies are generated up here in the Fertile Crescent. So you have the Syrian Empire, you have the Persian Empire, you have the Babylonian Empire. All of those come out of this Fertile Crescent region because there's excess agricultural production. The other place where you have armies come out of is Egypt. And Egypt is known as Mitzrayim in the Bible. And what Mitzrayim means is double-straighted. Egypt is a riverbed surrounded on both sides by desert. So virtually all of Egypt is in that river basin. The river produces agricultural surplus, which is the thing that drives the Egyptian empires. Egypt doesn't tend to be expansionist like the Persians and so forth. They tend to be more homebodies, but they will fight to control this land bridge. You've all heard this before, I think. I'm just sort of refreshing your memory quickly. Before the advent of deep water sailing, the deep water sailing was invented by the Persians, and the Persians were located on the coast of the Mediterranean. They also had colonies over in North Africa. So for example, Carthage was a Persian colony. Persians developed blue water sailing, which means that they could leave here and cut clear across the Mediterranean and get to wherever they want. Before the Persians, all of the sailing was coastal sailing. The ships never really left sight of the coast. 
So if you wanted to move an army from the Fertile Crescent, which has tremendous wealth, either to or from this northern part of Africa where Egypt is, and they have also got tremendous wealth, in order to move an army between those two, you've got to go through Israel. Because on the west, you've got the Mediterranean, and on the east, you've got the Arabian Desert. And you've got camel trading trains that go across the desert, but you don't move armies. So if you want to move an army, you've got to go through Israel, at least up until the time of the Persians. And then after that, the Romans and the Greeks all had deep water sailing. And you could move armies straight across the Mediterranean. But as you're coming down to Israel, and this is what's useful for the history of Israel, these armies would generate up here in the north, and they would come down through Damascus here. And you see the, the terrain there is sort of north-south compartments. In other words, you don't have to go over the top of mountains to get there. And if you're moving an army, you really don't want to do that. You want to go the easiest way possible. And so when they hit the Golan Heights here, then they'll cross the Jordan River, and you've got, this is uh, the book Kidron, where Elijah killed all the prophets of Baal. And this little horn here is the Carmel Mountains. And so if you're invading from the north, you come in here and you hit this area here, which is the plain of Estrelon, or the Jezreel Valley, known as both of those in scripture. And from there, what you do is you go through the pass here at Megiddo, and then you go down the coastal plain. So if you're moving an army, that's what they do. And some of them got all the way down to Egypt. And that's the way they go. So as Joshua is going to conquer, we may get into this some today, he's in this central highlands area. That's where he starts. He's going to come up out of the Jericho Valley, and he's going to go right there, which is the Saddle of Benjamin. And you can see on this map, it's sort of darker brown above that and darker brown below that. So you have a saddle there. And you have Jericho down here in the valley, about right there. And he's going to come up out of there. He's going to take the saddle of Benjamin. And then from there, he's going to go south and west and take the Canaanites to the south and west. And then he's going to turn and he's going to go north and he's going to take the waters of Merom. And I'll point that out when we get there. And that's where the kings of the north rally to oppose him. You've got two major fortress cities. You have Hazor, which sits right there. And notice that that is the north-south invasion route between those two mountain ridges that goes right through Lebanon. So you have a major fortress city there. It's a Canaanite city. It will be, wind up being an Israelite city. It will wind up being a fortress under Solomon. In other words, it guards the northern invasion route. The other one is Beth Shan. And Beth Shan will be right here. And that's in the plain of Esdraelon. And what that does is it guards from armies coming down through Damascus and then cutting over to the west through the Jezreel Valley. So those are two major fortress locations. And there's always a fortress there simply because the terrain channels invaders from the north through those two places. And we're going to see today that Joshua will take those two fortresses. So as I told you last time, had a 
priest come through and explain all this to me and, and lay out all the battles of Israel on the ground. And it's just really obvious that we're reading real history because whoever wrote it knows exactly how the ground lays. And things can only happen where they happen. So, for example, one of the things that happens is right here is a town called Apec. And this area is marshy. So in order to go north to south, you've got to go through Apec. And so what will happen in Second Samuel when we have uh, Eli? And he's got two sons that are both corrupt. Well, they go and they take the ark and they contend with the Philistines at Apec because Apec is a choke point and the chariots of the Philistines have to go through there because the area to the west of it is marsh and their chariots don't work with a flip there. So the infantry comes down out of the hills and sits on Apec and the Philistines say, aha, they're trying to cut the country in half and prevent us from going north to south. So there's a big battle and of course the Israelites lose it and lose the Ark of the Covenant but the only place that can happen is right there because that's the only place where dismounted infantry has an advantage over chariots because of the marsh. All right, so let's get into Joshua. So we're in Joshua and we're in chapter 3. What's happened obviously in chapter 2 was the business with the spies going to Jericho and the spies come back and give their report to Joshua saying that the morale of the people in Jericho is really bad, and you should be able to take them without any trouble. Now, chapter 3. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim. You can see there on the map, just to the north of the Dead Sea, on the east side of the Jordan, is Abel Shittim. So that's where they're starting. So they're starting opposite Jericho. That's where they're camped, and they're going to move to the Jordan River and do a river crossing. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim, and they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, As soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, your God, being carried by the Levitical priest, you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. 2,000 cubits is 1,000 yards. So maintain separation between yourselves and the ark of a thousand yards. Stay back from the ark. Don't get too close. So verse 4. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it, in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priest, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. So the Ark's getting ready to move. And notice that this is completely different than the order of march in the wilderness. Because remember, the order of march in the wilderness is you had the eastern tribe take off. Then you had the Levites carrying stuff. And then you had the southern tribes and so forth. So the, the Ark was in the middle essentially of the nation when they moved. Now the ark is going before the nation, which is a different thing. Verse 7, The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. As for you, command the priests who bear the ark of the covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. 
And Joshua said, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Gergesites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord over all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Verse 12. Now therefore take twelve men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man, and when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest on the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. So they went into the wilderness by crossing through the Red Sea. They are coming out of the wilderness by crossing through the Jordan. And in both cases, God is going to separate the waters so they go across on dry ground. And just so I get our map stuff straight, the waters are going to be stopped up there at Adam, and cease to flow, they'll walk across the Jordan, and then the waters will start to flow again. They're walking across down between Shittim and Jericho. So 25 or 30 miles upstream, the river is going to be stopped. And obviously the water's flowing downstream, and if there isn't any more water coming down, it drains out like a bathtub, and they walk across on dry land. So verse 14. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan, with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped in the brick of the water, now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest. This is at Passover. So at the time of harvest, we're talking about the barley harvest, and this is the latter rains, which are the rains that happen in the spring. Remember in Israel, there's the former and the latter rains. The former rains happen about this time of year, and we're getting nice rains, which would be the former rains in the land. And then in the spring, they will get the latter rains, and the banks of the Jordan will overflow when they're getting the rains. So verse 16, The waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarathon, and those flowing down toward the Sea of the Arabah. The salt sea were completely cut off, and the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priest bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. So what's happened is the waters have dried up at Adam, which is about 25 or 30 miles upstream, and the water continues to flow south until... It all runs out, but there's no more water coming in at the top, so everything dries up, and they go across. And the priests stand in the middle of the river until everybody has gone by. Now, one of the things Joshua said earlier is stay 2,000 cubits away from the ark. So what I don't know is whether the ark was 2,000 meters upstream and they walked out. I have no idea how all that worked. Chapter 4. When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Take twelve men from the people of each tribe, a man, and command them, saying, Take twelve stones from here, out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you, and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the twelve men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed, a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan. Take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of tribes of the people of Israel. 
that this may be a sign among you when your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord when it passed over the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan were cut off, so these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. So, obviously, picking up 12 large rocks, and they're going to make a monument where they lodge, which is going to be at Gilgal, and the idea is that it will be a memorial then of the crossing there. Verse 8, And the people of Israel did just as Joshua commanded, and took up twelve stones out of the midst of the Jordan, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, just as the Lord had told Joshua. And they carried them over with them to the place where they lodged, and laid them down there. And Joshua set up twelve stones in the midst of the Jordan, in the place where the feet of the priest bearing the Ark of the Covenant had stood, and they are there to this day. So we've got two monuments. We've got a monument in the middle of the river, which he set up while it was still dry, and then you've got a monument where they have taken 12 big stones and carried them to where they're going to camp. And I have no idea how deep the Jordan is at that place, especially when it floods, but I imagine during the summer when it's dry, you could probably see them. I don't know whether they would be visible during the flood. Just no idea. Ten, for the priest bearing the ark stood in the midst of the Jordan until everything was finished that the Lord commanded Joshua to tell the people according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua. The people passed over in haste, and when all the people had finished passing over, the ark of the Lord and the priest passed over before the people. The sons of Reuben, the sons of Gad, the half-tribe of Manasseh passed over armed before the people of Israel as Moses had told them. About 40,000 ready for war passed over before the Lord for battle to the plains of Jericho. On that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they stood in awe of him, just as they had stood in awe of Moses all the days of his life. So the thing that's obviously going on here is they've spent 40 years in the wilderness with Moses, and they have seen Moses do signs and wonders and miracles and so forth. And what's now happening is God is authenticating Joshua to let them know that just as he was with Moses, he is also with Joshua. And so part of the reason for going across on dry ground, in addition to which you have a giant chiasm where they went across the Red Sea on dry ground into the wilderness, and then they come out of the wilderness across water again on dry ground, is to authenticate that God is with Joshua. Verse 15, And the Lord said to Joshua, Command the priest bearing the ark of the testimony to come up out of the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priest come up out of the Jordan. And when the priest bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord came up from the midst of the Jordan, and the soles of the priest's feet were lifted up on dry ground, the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all its bank as before. Verse 19. The people came up out of the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month. So this would be what we know as Palm Sunday. And they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. Verse 20. And those twelve stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, When your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know. Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over. 
that all the people of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Chapter 5. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west, and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea, heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. Full stop here. Militarily, one of the most difficult operations is a river crossing. Because in a river crossing, you've got your people strung out, which means that you can't spread to the sides and maneuver. So everybody is going across the crossing point, and everybody is canalized and you make a really good target as you're crossing rivers. Very dangerous operation to cross a river militarily. So having crossed the river, the last thing that you want to do is put all of your fighting men out of commission for three days by circumcising them. You understand what's going on here. It's really, really odd. What they are doing is they are demonstrating extreme trust in the word of the Lord. Because if you were doing a river crossing in any other army, anywhere else in the world, at any other time in history, it's a very perilous operation. And the last thing you'd do would be get on the far side, which is the enemy's side, and then take all your men out of commission. I mean, if we're going to do circumcision, let's do it before the river crossing, so that when we go across the river, we're ready to fight. They do it exactly backwards. So what this demonstrates is trust in the Lord. They're doing things that militarily make no sense whatsoever because... God says to, and they trust that he's going to be able to give them success and so forth. Once they're across the river, there's no way back. There's a Roman battle, I don't remember when, but what the Roman commander did is his army crossed the river and the commander burned the bridges behind them. And so the deal there is, I have burned the bridges behind you, which means that you're either going to win or you're going to die, which gives everybody lots of motivation. That's where the metaphor of burning your bridges behind you comes from. You are completely committed. We're either going to win this or we're going to die in the process. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath Ha-Aroth. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. Though all the people who came out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. I have no idea why. But the deal was, in Egypt they circumcised, in the wilderness they didn't, and so they got catch-up to do as they're coming out of the wilderness. Verse 6, For the people of Israel walked forty years in the wilderness until all the men of war who came out of Egypt perished, because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give to us. There's a change in pronoun here in my translation. That doesn't make any sense to me grammatically. To give to us. Now, we know who us is, but this is not a quotation. You know, everything has been third person up till now. Back up in verse 2, it says, At that time the Lord said to Joshua, quote, Make flint knives for yourselves, and so forth. And that quotation ends uh, at the end of verse 2. And there are no more quotations in there. It's all third person. And then all of a sudden we get first person plural, us. So verse 6 again. 
For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness, until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished, because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. Verse 7. So it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. What I don't know is you also have men who were 18 years old at the time of the sin of the spies, and it was only the adults that were not allowed to go in. So those young men would probably have been circumcised because they came out of Egypt. What the Jews do today is if a man converts to Judaism and he was circumcised as a baby in a hospital, you know, not ritually circumcised, just medically circumcised as a baby in the hospital, what will happen is they will have him circumcised by a rabbi, but there isn't anything there to circumcise. So what they'll do is they'll make a small nick at the place where you would be circumcised and just draw a little bit of blood out of it as a, as a symbolic thing. And I don't know if that was done to the men who had been young men, but not old enough to have been under the death sentence. just don't know if that's the case. Even though we don't understand what's going on, it's also very obvious that entering into the promised land, you must be circumcised. So verse 8, when the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the name of that place was called Gilgal to this day. When we get to Jericho, it is even going to get more weird. Matthew pointed something out to me, is that one of the things that happens at Jericho is you're told that you're not supposed to do anything on the Sabbath. And you're told that the Ark of the Lord is not to go into battle. Well, going around Jericho, they go around six days, and on the seventh day, they do seven times as much. And they're carrying the Ark. I mean, just all sorts of violations of things that Moses had told them to do. Uh, now, God's telling them to do this, so I'm not at all worried, but it's just things are going to get much weirder before they get unweird here. And with that, let's go ahead and stop.